So at 7.30 a.m., I headed out to water the plants, and that's when I saw that someone had tossed some trash over the fence. So I headed over, and I grabbed the trash, and when I was headed to the trash can, I noticed that the bag containing all of the recycling materials had literally disintegrated, and they were rolling all over the place. So that's when I went inside to get a bag to replace it. But when I got inside, well, uh, that's when the phone rang, and then anyway. So later that afternoon, I heard the cans rolling around and realized I had never taken care of it. I also went over and found the trash that I'd picked up in the yard and set onto a trash can, but not in the trash can. And that's when I remembered that it all started with me needing to go out to water the plants, which still hadn't been done. Now, because I'm ADHD, such detours and interruptions don't bother me. They're just a fact of life. But talk to my wife. For her, it's a whole different story. She sends me to get milk. I come home with a shovel from Home Depot. An iced tea, light ice from McDonald's, deodorant from Target, my gas tank is filled up thanks to Costco, and occasionally, all right, less than occasionally, I even remember the milk. In our gospel lesson, Jesus is out being Jesus when the head of the local synagogue begs him, my young daughter is very, very ill. I need you to come and save her. But while he's on his way, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years sneaks up behind him and touches his robe. Now, this is a side note, but according to Leviticus 15, this woman, because of her condition, was declared unclean. If she followed the law, she was not to have any contact with people, because if anyone touched her or she touched anyone, they then became unclean. The term unclean was originally a way for people who had various diseases or private life events to spend time alone. It wasn't punishment. They were being set apart during which time there was no social or community expectations for them. Now, it didn't take long for some who were insecure and trying to gain power over others to begin using these events and the required time alone as punishment, and they publicly disgraced them, claiming, you know what, I bet they're just cursed by God. Now, according to the law, if Jesus touched this woman, even if he was simply healing her, he was also going to be unclean for seven days. And so the woman, most likely out of desperation, but also not wanting to interrupt this very important person and his mission and ministry, decided to sneak up behind him, touch the hem of his robe, hoping that she would be healed, but also preserving his integrity. Imagine her faith. She believed that just by touching the hem of his robe that she would be healed. And think of her desire, not wanting him to be declared unclean because she cared that much about him. At the moment she touched his garment, the Bible says Jesus knew that power had gone out of him. I thought those were kind of strange words, so I checked 12 different translations. Ten said power, one said healing power, and the King James said virtue. This boggles my mind. Jesus knew that someone had been healed because they had touched his robe. Since I have to believe people were bumping into him and patting him on the back and grabbing him by the shoulders and pulling him close for the official Jewish greeting, which is very similar, by the way, to the breath of life, aha, in Hawaiian, I knew that this moment had to be different somehow from all the rest because it wasn't like every time somebody bumped into them, they were healed. Jesus turns and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, you've got to be kidding. Look at the crowd, Jesus. Who haven't you bumped into? And Jesus says, no, something miraculous happened. And I need to know who it happened to. Spoiler alert, the woman is healed. 
Jesus has an amazing spiritual conversation with her. I'm sure that anyone who witnessed that conversation never forgot it, and they continued to tell that story for the rest of their lives because it was beautiful and powerful. Meanwhile, the little girl that Jesus was on his way to help, she died. Now, some people claim that they can do more than one thing at the same time. It's called multitasking. Students say that they can be on their phone and listen to the teacher. Drivers say they can text and drive. Congress says it can govern the people and breathe at the same time. But MIT says our brains are not wired to multitask well. When people think they're multitasking, they're actually just switching from one task to the other very rapidly. And every time they do, the research says, there is a cognitive cost. In other words, there's a microsecond delay. And sometimes that microsecond delay can be deadly. Now in Jesus' case, stopping to find out who touched his robe cost this little girl her life. Same things happen, by the way, when Mary and Martha tell Jesus to hurry because Lazarus is dying and he better get there quick. And Jesus lollygags all over the place so that by the time he shows up, Lazarus had been dead for days. God interrupted. Ever felt like you poured your heart out to God? God, you told him exactly what you needed, said all the right words. You even said pretty please with whipped cream and a maraschino cherry on top. And so as you took off, Jesus was right behind you. And you go, great. And you just, you just were so focused. And then all of a sudden you turned around and he wasn't there. He was gone. He'd been interrupted, and he went off to help someone else. So where is God's heart? And yeah, I know that he doesn't have a living, blood-pumping heart like we do. I'm also not talking about a sentimental chocolate valentine heart like we give to someone with the message, my heart is yours. No, the heart of God I'm talking about is the force, the will, the spirit, the desire of God to love us and draw us unto himself. As a parent, when someone breaks your child's heart, when they move out of the house when their van breaks down, when they have to make one of those painful adult decisions where everyone loses, when they feel lost and they're not sure where to go. Our heart hurts for our kids. Longs to pull them close. Wants to fix everything, including those things that we know can't be fixed. You know, I've only got four kids and five grandkids. One of Nancy and I's kids is in heaven. They got to be raised by Jesus. That's the only one that I'm not worried about. But now imagine having seven and a half billion children going through all the things that we read about, hear about, experience. What do you think it's like loving seven and a half billion people and taking care of them and making sure they know you love them and helping them navigate through this upside down world? If you only follow the news and social media, you'd come to think that no one in the world agrees with anybody else. Seven and a half billion completely and totally different people all go in their own way, and there isn't a single thing that they agree on. Except that's wrong. There's at least one. We're exhausted. COVID has exhausted us. And as Kayla said last week, the way out of the pandemic is much more of a path and I'm going to say a long one than a switch that we just get to flip and instantly it's over. As we chart our steps down that long path, we have a very long list of things that God needs to take care of. And we really want him to speed things up and tick all the boxes so we can get back to what we thought was a miserable life pre-COVID. 
but now we desperately long to return to. And by the way, we don't have time for interruptions, not for God to get interrupted and not for us to get interrupted. While most everyone is interested in their mental and physical exhaustion, few are paying attention to their soul exhaustion. As believers, we know the soul is the deepest part of ourselves. It is who we are, and it is so unique and unreproducible. It doesn't matter how many billions of people will ever be born. There will never, ever, ever be anyone just like us. The soul is also our connection to our creating, redeeming, and sanctifying God. As the world blindly tries to fix all the social and economic and genetic and community evils that have plagued humankind since the Garden of Eden, and which, by the way, every generation has promised to fix, but failed to for obvious reasons, the soul becomes more and more forgotten. Jesus once asked, what good is it if my man gains the whole world but forfeits his soul in the process? And by the way, if I had been there with Jesus, I would have said, is it really possible to gain the whole world? Is it really possible to fix everything, to be happy, to not feel lonely or hurt or like we're missing out or, or that, that someone doesn't like us? I mean, is that really possible, Jesus? You see, the more I read about all the famous people, you know, the ones with all the money and the private jets and the cars and the homes and the social media followers that all get held up as true success stories, and yet in their rare moments of honesty, they admit that no matter how much they have, they still feel empty lost and hurting, and far too many of them, by the way, wind up dying long before they need to. And by the way, often their solution is to just keep buying more, doing more, trying to be more in a never-ending cycle. See, when Jesus got interrupted and arrived too late to help Lazarus, as he's talking to Mary and Martha, first he talks to Martha, and he, she gets real painfully honest. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I mean, that's, that's kind of bold, don't you think? If you had been there, if you hadn't lollygagged, if you hadn't gotten interrupted, my brother wouldn't be dead right now. And Jesus responds, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, I know that. I just don't want to have to wait until the resurrection of the dead. I thought being friends with you that you'd drop everything and get here, and I wouldn't have to go through all of this. And there it is. Because there's a lot of times I feel just like Martha. Hey, God, I know you're going to fix everything eventually, and I don't want you to think I'm ungrateful, uh, but I really don't want to wait until then. So could you hurry things up, not get distracted by everybody else's prayers, and just kind of focus and concentrate on me right now? See, when God gets interrupted, my life gets interrupted. If anyone should be able to multitask, it's God. I just don't know what his limits are before, as MIT says, that cognitive cost takes a significant enough toll on God that things get messed up, and in the interruption, people die. The real problem, though, is me, not God. But this isn't an easy thing to understand, and it's even harder to accept. See, I tend to forget I'm not the only person in the universe. I also tend to think that I know what's best, not only for me, but for everybody else, which is why God needs to pay attention to my prayers. Now, the Bible calls that sin, and this is where God says to me, you need to be still and know that I'm God. And by the way, it's both a command and a promise, although it's really heavy on the promise if I'm willing to accept it. But it does mean that I have to accept His way of doing things. That's the rub. I think about that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. I think about her family. To them, it wasn't an interruption. It was a gift of healing, 
of resurrection, of restoration. Would I really want her to wait any longer? Could I really believe that I'm more important regardless of what I'm asking for? Most of you have heard my ad nauseum speech on God living outside time and space and how even though we have to live through the past, the present, and the future one second at a time, God doesn't have to. See, for God, it's all right now. God doesn't separate yesterday from tomorrow or today. It's just right now for him. When a dear friend who was a missionary pilot died in a plane crash, it was the words of C.S. Lewis that brought me comfort. This is what C.S. Lewis said, although he was writing it during World War II about something that everyone could understand. But he said, almost certainly God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one after another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 in every other moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it this way, he has all eternity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. God never really gets distracted or interrupted or lost. He is always exactly where he needs to be, when he needs to be there. In fact, he is always here. We just forget he's not a genie in a bottle for us to summon and grant wishes whenever we want him to. Just because we believe does not mean he has to do for us whatever we want, when we want, and how we want. And one of the hardest things about these stories is when Jesus arrives and raises this little girl from the dead, we start to think, yes, that's it. If we just wait, if we cut God some slack, if we keep praying, then he will eventually give us what we want. Even, even if it wasn't when we wanted it. But that's not always true. And here is where St. Paul's words in Romans 8 push us in ways we'd rather not be pushed, but need to be. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, rulers, things present, things to come, evil powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the way, it's a much longer list, but I want you to hear all those things. In other words, it's not just the good things, but there's an admission there that sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, it's those bad things, those dark things that are going to come pressing in on us. See, this brings us back to the heart of God. There is a term that gets used in the Bible by St. Paul. He says we're prisoners of hope. And those two terms are so opposite, so anti each other. And yet, they speak the truth. And they speak the truth because they are put together. The two terms. We are prisoners of hope. Prisoners in the sense that this life and this world is out of control. And there is so much happens that hurts and we can't do anything about it. And sometimes it seems like God has gotten interrupted, that he has forgotten about us. And yet we still have hope. A hope that transcends even the darkness and the gloom that continues to press in on us. But you see, that darkness can never quite touch us, no matter how hard it tries. It gets close, far too close for our liking. But thanks to Jesus, it can never, ever touch us. Frederick Buechner wrote, If we are people who pray, darkness is apt to be a lot of what our prayers are about. If we are people who do not pray, it is apt to be darkness in one form or another that has shut up our mouths. Here's the point of it all. Darkness is always broken apart by light. 
whether it's the rising of the sun at 5.30 a.m. or seeing a day in the not-too-distant future when we will not have to let COVID control our lives. Or, and this one hurts, but it is the most powerful light, is when the angels singing a welcome to the ones we love as they gathered are gathered by God into heaven forever and where nothing evil or dark will ever be able to get near them again. We know that the light always wins, even if it's hard for us because the ones we love are no longer right here with us. They're with God. And being a prisoner of hope, we know that that day is going to come for us. But that doesn't mean that we still understand or like this in-between time. You see, the real challenge is understanding this life, whatever it may be, is not the real life. This is just a time of practice. And God isn't multitasking, nor does He get interrupted. He lets us live and make mistakes. He lets us fail, and it hurts, and He knows it hurts. But it is all part of life and learning the difference between being prisoners of hope and prisoners of darkness. You see, in the end, the light will win. We will be prisoners no more, and we will discover what life was meant to be and what, thanks to Jesus, life will be forever and ever. But until then, God gives us faith and hope. I know we'd rather all have the things that we want, the things we think we need, the things that we demand from God. But if we must be prisoners, and all of us are, then let us rejoice that we are prisoners of hope and faith, and not the darkness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.